This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Stan's Leap, and the author is Tom Durick, and Tom joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Tom. Hello. Well, this is a adventure story, probably people's worst nightmare, who are traveling to get stranded on an island. Well, why, why take that twist? Why t- go down that road? What was fascinating to you about creating these characters and this incredible you know, story of survival? Well, I've always been, um, I guess, intrigued or interested by uh, all the great castaway stories in history. You know, Mutiny on the Bounty is probably the, the greatest of them all. And um, whenever I read these things, I find myself wondering if something like that could really happen today or whether it's a thing of the past. And uh, if it could happen, then uh, what would it be like if uh, there were ordinary people, not adventurers, but vacationers that were, were trapped? And I guess uh, I just started writing, and I didn't really know at first where it was going. It was just a way of trying to find out where it would go. Uh, so in the end, it was a lot of fun, and the story actually went a very different way than I expected. Well, you write that the most difficult part was coping with the characters that had a very different idea where the book should go. <laughs> in the yeah. end, they won. <laughs> that's, they, that's right. They so, did win. And, so what did they, you know, they? it's something that uh, I hear all other authors talk about, how their characters take on a life of their own. Well, that's really true. And, and you know, it was my, it's my first novel, and it was something I guess I never would have believed or imagined. Uh, I think Kurt Vonnegut wrote about that, actually, in Breakfast of Champions. And in retrospect now, I, it, it, I can really see that. I, I had plans for each of the characters. I knew who was going to have relationships with whom and so on. And, in fact, they didn't listen to me at all. They, they, they went their own direction, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun to see, see what they did. Why did you choose Henderson Island? Now, this is a real place. This really exists. It really exists. Uh, Henderson Island <clears throat> is um, the most remote I- island, probably the most remote place on Earth. It's uninhabited. It's never been inhabited. And uh, it happens, by coincidence, to be just 100 miles away from Pitcairn Island, where the mutiny on the bounty um, uh, mutineers went uh, to escape from the British. Um, so I guess I kind of researched, I needed an island that, that was really very isolated and it could make the whole story plausible. And I stumbled on Henderson Isle, and the more I read about it, the more fascinated I became with it. Um, and the fact that it was near Pitcairn Island only made it more intriguing because the history of Pitcairn is, uh, is an astounding story for those that don't know it. Well, this is so fascinating to you that you're actually going there, you told me, to Henderson Island to see I, it firsthand. I've arranged the trip, that's right. Uh, I'm, I estimate that somebody goes there about once every two years, and there is a, a very small trip going there uh, next year, and I'm, I've booked a, a place on board. You can't fly there, and there are very few uh, ships that go there, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. The characters all start as normal people, people that we all know, you say. That's the idea, yep. I, I actually started by having prototypes, people I knew, and I thought, let's see how this person would uh, respond and how they would behave in this kind of an environment. But they sure changed. So tell us about the main characters. Uh, there's five or six main characters, and there's about 20 characters in the in, throughout the story, but... These main characters, tell us about Stan. What kind of a person, regular person, is Stan? Well, you you pretty much said it. He is exactly <laughs> that. He's a regular person. He's a, a software engineer. 
and uh, he is not an adventurer at all. Now, his, his wife is quite an adventurer and talks him into going on this trip. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to say too much about what happens to Stan and Jenny because there are a lot of surprising twists and turns in their life. Um, but suffice it to say that uh, uh, their their lives and relationship change enormously. How does it? How do people deal with the unimaginable? Then how do they deal? I mean, what what is the process? What was the process you put them through? Obviously, they get marooned there in some way, and then there comes a time where they have to all of a sudden go, "What's going on?" Right? Yeah. That that. <laughs> That was uh, why, why are we still here? Why aren't we rescued? Right, exactly. Why didn't the plane come and pick us up? And when the plane is day is late on the first day, well, you can cope with that. And the second day, you, you can cope with it. And then after a few days, you start to wonder what's really going on. And um, it, it, that was quite interesting. Different people uh, came to grips with uh, reality faster than others. And then there were different schools of thought once they did. Should they try and leave the island on their own? Obviously a very risky proposition. Should they try to, uh, to uh, do the best they can on the island, or do they simply give up? And, um, and little clans begin to form, depending on how they, uh, how they respond to it. So how many people are on the island? Well, it changes throughout the story. Um, it, originally, there are, there are 22 Let's say there are additions. Uh, there are there are there are children that are born eventually, and there are um, there are people that pass away, um, but it, it, the population stays right around that number. So an accident turns into a whole lifetime. An accident turns into a whole lifetime. That's right. How did you? How did Stan? Uh, who who is the leader here? Are there different factions uh, developing? It sounds like there are. There are. There are three factions, each with their own leader, and uh, there's with different, one, probably with different uh, criteria or not or agendas. <laughs> uh, very different agendas, and there's one overwhelming leader or personality. Uh, Chemo is his name, and he is in fact the. Um, I guess you could say the chief of the island, uh, the person that uh, that uh, is responsible for the resort when they first land, and he becomes an overwhelming character, neither good nor bad, controversial, I guess you could say. So this is really a psychological kind of uh, journey into people's lives that all of a sudden get their lives turned upside down and they all in a unique way deal with the situation or don't deal with it <laughs> that's right they all the, the heroes become well, let's say protagonists become antagonists and vice versa so the people i expected to be uh, you know the uh, the heroes turned out not to be and vice versa when you put that amount of stress on people, you never know what's going to happen. Well, that's true. So give us a little insight into one of these factions. Uh, you know, what, is Stan a leader of a faction? He is, um, and his, his particular faction is one that wants to do everything they possibly can to get off the island and find out what's really going on, um, you know, why they were never picked up and what's really going on in the outside world. They're unable to do that. There are physical constraints which make that exceedingly risky or difficult, but that's his faction's uh, perspective. Now, you mentioned second generation. You mentioned children being born. Now, uh, do these children become part of the drama because they grow up and become adults? Uh, yes, and, and, I, and that was a lot of fun to write about, too, because you can imagine um, a whole generation with a huge generational gap of 20 years and the older generation telling the younger generation about all these things in the world like airplanes and elevators and uh, television and so on. And frankly, they don't believe any of it. You know, ice, does ice exist? How could it? Um, you know, it doesn't make sense to them, snow and all these things. So it's really very interesting to see how the younger generation and the older generation um, bifurcate 
And this, you know, I don't, don't mean to drag on, but that actually happened at Pitcairn Island, where exactly this happened 200 years ago with the mutineers and their Tahitian uh, wives uh, settled down, and there was a 20-year age gap between them and the next generation. Uh, so it's, it's not a crazy proposition. How did you have them survive as far as, you know, this is a remote island. What about food? What did they have to learn to do? Food was the easiest part. Uh, food was the easiest part because the, the, this is a, a resort, if you like, a vacation resort where people go to live like ancient Polynesians 200 years ago. So the, the resort was set up to be self-sustaining, no problem with food. There's plenty of food on the island. It's the issue. There were no metal. There was no metal, no modern materials, no radios, phones, or anything of that sort. Um, but actual physical survival was was really not so much an issue. Who was the strongest woman on the island on in this adventure? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, how do I say that without giving away too much? I'll I'll make it easy. Um, there's a there's a a Tahitian girl named Mati, and I would say she turns out to be the, uh, uh, in the end, the most powerful. So she is an island woman from the from that I guess was working there at the resort. She was. She was one of the two people that was running the resort, and as I say, you know, changed enormously. Uh, but she, I would say, she turns out to be the the heroine, if you like. So how does the resort become an island of survival if it's a resort? Yeah, well, yeah, you got to read it. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the. That's um, one of the. That's, yeah, yeah, that's part of the story, huh? Right. So, I mean, I will say this: a week into it, there's a, a, a great storm that comes by, and it's a very unusual storm. Nothing like anything anyone had seen before. Uh, I'm not saying terribly severe, just some very unusual aspects to it that lead different people to conclude different things about why people haven't come to pick them up. And again, I don't want to say what actually happened, uh, but that uh, you got to read it to find that out. Tom, as you did your research on these remote places uh, in Henderson Island, Pitcairn Island, uh, what was the the attraction? What was the tie that that you wanted to focus on these and these islands as part of your story, or at least you know the the uh, similarity to this remote place in your story? Yeah, I, I mean, I brought up Pitcairn before. I mean, I, I I don't know how familiar people are with what really happened there. Maybe it it makes sense to just uh, revisit that. Uh, there were eight. Um, mutineers on the bounty that everybody makes a movie about. And everybody talks about Captain Bly and Fletcher Christian. But not very much is spoken about uh, what happened to the mutineers later. So these eight mutineers kidnapped 13 Tahitian women and um, five Tahitian men slaves that they treated as slaves. And they sunk the boat off this Pitcairn Island, which was at the time, again, amongst the most remote islands in the world, and um, set, a, set out to, to live there forever. I mean, they had no choice. The island was about a mile in circumference, tiny, just a rock, mischarted on every, on every map there was. And, and now you've got these 13 women, eight Englishmen, and five Tahitian men stranded on this island. And what happens is just an amazing story. The First, there was a, a racial war between the Tahitians and the English, and the uh, Tahitian men were all killed. Then the Tahitian women um, had a war with the men, and all the men got killed. They were all killed. And the women kept one man as, quote, I would say, breeding stock. Um, and the island remained unvisited and undetected for 25 years um, until finally a boat came by. And you can't land at the island, but the, the Pitcairn Islanders came out in a canoe 25 years later, the second generation, out to an American whaling ship, I guess it was, and, um, and um, I guess hailed the ship in, in English. 
And it turns out they built a society there in 25 years that spoke English, uh, could read and write, um, and was totally isolated from the rest of the world, completely. And um, it, it, it's just a great story and still very mysterious exactly what happened. And Pitcairn still exists. It has a population of about 60 people, um, and it is still completely isolated from the rest of the world. Well, so, I mean, if there was one thing that kind of drove me, it was, it was that story. And, you know, could that really happen? And what would... It's just a fascinating story. And just as you were talking, I was thinking about how a society would uh, come together in such a unique situation. And then, you, you know, with the whole aspect of government, of rules and regulations, there would have to be new rules and regulations created for the circumstance. <laughs> very good, very good. And I'm sure that's part of your story, too. Huh? It there's is. A, there's where the power play comes in. <laughs> yep, very good. You're exactly right. And once again, there's a, a fabulous analog to Pitcairn, where, in fact, in the news, the New Zealand government is trying to impose its laws on Pitcairn. And it's it's turning out to be an impossibility. Hmm. But it, it, it's very much in the news. Well, Tom, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, the easiest is uh, is Amazon.com, of course, carries it. Or I have a website, StansLeap.com, inventively named. Uh, those uh, easy channels. And, of course, iUniverse.com. That's right, iUniverse.com as well. But the StansLeap uh, website will link to iUniverse. So. We appreciate you sharing your story with us, Tom. Well, it's a pleasure. That was Tom Durig. He is the author of his book, Stan's Leap. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com your story are you living it well you could be it's what's your story with hillary bilbrey friday mornings at 10 eastern 9 a.m central on toginet.com her passion is helping others discover create and live their personal brands yep you heard me you have a brand no different than coke pepsi or nike you are a walking talking living breathing brand you're not a logo you're not a tagline the choices you make become the path you take this is your brand now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbury. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. And the author is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps retired. And we welcome Bob now to iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Hello, Steve, and thanks for having me on. Well, it's a thrill to have you here, and this is a, a startling inside look at 24 hours, 
following the attack on the World Trade Centers. Uh, I'm going to read a couple things that you have written. First of all, though, I, I want to, everyone to understand that the National Security Council has reviewed the contents of this book for the purpose of safeguarding our country's classified information and has approved it for publication. That's important that everyone understands that you have written this with complete approval of the government. Yes. All right. You say this. The day America changed forever and how I directly supported the vice president, national security advisor, and national command authority as the attack on America was in progress. Someone else has written this about you. 24 hours inside the president's bunker is the story of Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darlene and his account of what took place at the top of the United States chain of command on September 11, 2001, as the U.S. government struggled to respond to the sudden terrorist strike launched against our nation. Well, this is very dramatic and just a lot of answers to a lot of questions, Bob. Uh, What prompted you to uh, write the book, which I'm sure was something that you can never forget and probably have dreamt about a lot? You know, when when this first happened, I was on, it was 2001, obviously, I was on active duty, and, you know, an active duty Marine Corps officer, you know, it's very difficult to actually get in there and write something and get it all the way through the chain of command. And uh, it just would have taken forever with so many people wanting to read it and get involved in it. So I waited till I was fully retired. And my purpose for writing this book was to get the history correct. I wanted to have a full, accurate account. And I wanted to share it with everyone, the American public of the crisis leadership decisions that were made that day on behalf of all Americans. Some of those were gut-wrenching decisions. They were based on unfiltered, real-time information, and I think it's just so important that the American public have it and understand the, the, you know, the level of intensity and decision-making that occurs that day. So you were at the President's Emergency Operations Center, and where is that located? Yeah, that's beneath the White House. The exact location, obviously, is classified. It is the emergency operation. It's a hardened emergency operation center, you know, designed for the president and his top advisors in the case of, you know, uh, some, some catastrophic event that occurs uh, in, in and around Washington. And how did you end up inside this command center? I was a, a Marine helicopter pilot. I was part of the Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. Uh, I was flying as a co-pilot for President Clinton for a few years, and I was a pilot command for Vice President Gore. When inside the White House military office, there's also a senior aviator that needs to be a liaison with the president's staff. And when our liaison officer moved on to his next assignment, there was a vacancy there, the commanding officer asked me to fill that vacancy, so then I was working in the Eisenhower Building, which is adjacent to the West Wing, and I was a subject matter expert on helicopter operations for the president's staff. The primary role of that job is to do logistics. As the president travels worldwide, he never goes anywhere without secure telephones, his Secret Service hard cars and limousines, and, of course, his Marine helicopters. We move all that equipment out of Andrews Air Force Base to locations worldwide three or four days prior to him arriving on Air Force One, fully exercise and rehearse. So when he gets there to conduct his political agenda, we are there ready to support him. My primary job was to make sure that equipment was placed in time and returned immediately after his departure on Air Force One. On 9-11-2001, I had... Uh, arranged and coordinated and planned his mission to Florida, Sarasota, Florida. That day I was anticipating him coming back on Air Force One and then, you know, retrograding is the term we use to get all the equipment back out of Florida, back up to Andrews. Well, after the Pentagon was struck, we, we all watched CNN, we saw the towers were struck. Soon after the Pentagon was struck, it was obvious to us all in the airlift operations department there that our president would not be returning to Washington but would be, in fact, going to some other undisclosed location. Wherever he was going to go, obviously there was no presidential logistics package waiting for him. I was then ordered down to the President's Emergency Operations Center with logistics on my mind. And as soon as I got through the big door and the big door closed, 
uh, I was immediately um, summoned to put that down for the moment and help answer the phones that were obviously ringing off the hook from information coming down or other people seeking information, and that's where the story picks up. So what were you feeling at that moment in time? Well, like everybody else, uh, it was an unbelievable sight, uh, just watching the news up there in New York. And at the time, we were thinking that we needed to get FEMA and first responders and all that equipment up to uh, help the police, fire, port authority, and hospital members up there in New York. When uh, when the Pentagon was struck, we realized that we had this terrorist attack that was not only in New York, but going on in Washington. So I'm thinking, hey, our country's under attack. My role is to support the president. I'm not about to evacuate the White House when everybody else is leaving. I'm going down there to do my job, and my job at the time was logistics. And when I got down there and the phones were ringing and the military aide told me to answer the phones, the first phone call I got, um, Steve, was from the Situation Room, which is the very popular Situation Room. It's located in the West Wing. All information goes into the Situation Room, but because Washington was under attack, uh, the information now was being sent downstairs into the PIOC, and I was being fed real-time information for what was going on outside. Who became the decision-maker on that fatal day? My first phone call was, this is a situation room. We have a hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, inbound Washington, D.C. And my, my response was, okay, you're going to have to hold on. I turned to find the military aide for the vice president who was in the room, and lo and behold, there was the vice president himself standing a foot away from me going, Major, what do you got? So I started feeding Mr. Vice President, 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, D.C. We have another hijacked plane. He turned to the speaker phones, and obviously the room was filling up with staffers, and sec, uh, the National Security Advisor was there, and Lynn Cheney, and, and Secretary Mineta. Everybody's into, the, into my corner of the room. The speaker boxes on the wall were chiming to life, and the first person he spoke to was this gentleman named Rick from the FAA Command Center, saying, Rick, can you confirm that we have a hijacked plane south of Pittsburgh inbound Washington, D.C.? They came back a few minutes later, Mr. Vice President, it's not squawking the transponder code, it's well off course, that's a hijacked plane. So now the Vice President um, really amazed all of us. We anticipated him trying to ask more questions, how far away, how fast it's going, where do you think it's headed, and instead... He went right into what he knows from his previous experiences and all the jobs he had as Chief of Staff and Secretary of Defense and Vice President to say um, to the Pentagon, I want two F-15s at a Votus Air National Guard base. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this plane down. So you heard the Pentagon then roger up. Um, we're scrambling F-15s. They're supersonic over Long Island. They're five minutes out from the target. They want to be confirmed weapons free to engage. And he said, of course, they're weapons free to engage. Within a few minutes, we heard aircraft down, aircraft down, 68 miles south of Pittsburgh. And the vice president, the room, as you can imagine, Steve, was sucked out of the room. It was dead silent with all eyes on the vice president, who just uh, did the ultimate uh, leadership, crisis leadership decision to stop this aircraft full of terrorists from reaching its target uh, in Washington, D.C., he turned towards me, walked right over, and said, for the congressional inquiry, state your full name. From Robert Joseph Darling to the vice president to the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, we just shot that plane down. I really need to talk to the president. Wow. Everyone feeling that a lot of innocent civilians, American citizens, had just been killed with this decision by the vice president. Well, I, I think that's the way we initially felt, was the Air Force had taken lethal action against this commercial airliner. But the, really, the, the truth of the matter was, the moment those terrorists took control of that aircraft, it was no longer a commercial airliner. It was a 150-ton Tomahawk cruise missile heading for a target. Uh, it was not intending to land. It was not intending to divert. It didn't have any demands other than crash into its predetermined target somewhere in Washington, D.C., and, and really we believe that was going to be the, the state, you know, our capital, national capital. And the vice president did, uh, he was so far ahead of the rest of us as far as seeing it for what, unfortunately, it really was. And the good news is, and I want to make this perfectly clear to the, to the listeners, that a few minutes later, within really two minutes later, all the radios came to life, 
that in fact the F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. The aircraft Flight 93 was on the ground when they got there. It was the passengers who refused to let the terrorists win. They united themselves. They stormed the cockpit. They tried to take back their aircraft, and they themselves thwarted the attempts of these terrorists to reach their target in Washington, D.C. We truly have a plane full of heroes and not a plane full of victims. Uh, That's where the credit really lies. And you believe a hero in Vice President Cheney that day as well. Well, we needed a hero. We needed someone to take charge. As you know, the the National Command Authority is the ultimate legal authority to order our military in the action. And and on that particular day, President Bush was really en route to Air Force One to try to get non-Air Force One, to get airborne on Air Force One. The Secretary of Defense was just suffered an impact on on the Pentagon. He was outside, uh, you know, assessing the damage. And we needed someone like Vice President Cheney to get the military in motion to not sit back and let these terrorists go four out of four uh, on their targets, but instead to do what needed to be done. And he was the perfect guy. He was the, the, the crisis leader of the day who made that happen. Well, also, your book covers the near killing of a medical evacuation helicopter as it was headed toward the White House. We don't have time for those details. As well as, uh, you took a call from res- uh, Russian President Putin. I sure did. I sure did. And if you want me just to, to share that with you, we Please. Just, the president was well, the president was on the line, and we had just he just recommended we move our strategic nuclear forces to a higher state of readiness in an attempt to get all the military back to work worldwide. It was the quickest way to do a recall, if you will. And we went from uh, DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. We were standing by DEFCON 2. It went to the Pentagon by executive order of the president, out to Cheyenne Mountain, and then from Cheyenne Mountain out to the four-star combatant commanders. And then you can hear them roger up that the United States is now moving from DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. We're standing by 2. And with a few minutes, uh, the Russian president had called in his phone call was patched down. I answered the phone. They said, I have Russian President Vladimir Putin on the line. Will you take the call? And obviously I was um, saying, well, you're going to have to hold on just one second. And I turned, seeking the vice president, yelled out, Mr. Vice President, I have President Putin on the phone. Will you take the call? He sent Dr. Rice over. She grabbed it through an interpreter. She just very plain language, thanked him for his call, told him our president was in motion. We don't know the size and scope of the attack but thank you for standing down your nuclear forces. So that obviously caught all of our attention there, and we later learned, just quickly learned, that whenever we uh, heighten our readiness, nuclear posture, Russia does the same thing. It's part of an agreement we have, and they decided that day, based on the events that were taking place in our country, not to match the heightened readiness condition. They stood down, so there was no confusion between the two nuclear superpowers what was going on. And that evening, you saw the president? The president came back uh, about 6 o'clock p.m. That evening, he was met on the lawn by Dr. Rice. He quickly came in. He came down to the PIOC, and he's on the executive side of the PIOC. And if you're a cabinet member and you were able to get there before him, you were in. If not, you were out. And literally, uh, he's never been tested. All eyes were on him. President Bush walked in. He sat down. Right across the table from him was Vice President Cheney and they started talking. So the president was just silent, and everybody was giving him the data dump. If you had something to say from your cabinet or from your area of responsibility, say it. If not, just uh, you know, sit quietly. As it came all the way around to the table, President Bush looks up and says, FEMA, where are you at? And it was Joe Alba. He goes, I want you on the next plane out of here up to New York. Bring your checkbook. I heard to mess up there. Transportation, where are you? Here, Mr. President, said Secretary Mineta. He goes, I want planes, trains, and automobiles up and operating by noon tomorrow. When you figure it out, you let me know. I want to see my national security team upstairs in five minutes. The rest of you, thanks for coming. The president had had got his intelligence. He got a second daily briefing book. He knew that we were attacked by terrorists. He knew what terrorists. He knew what he wanted to have done. He was preparing the country for war. The rest of us at that time had just had to simply catch up to him. And out the door he goes, national security team upstairs, and everyone went back to trying to get the cabinet home and doing, you know, what we were challenged to do that day. 
The title of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. This is the personal account of the unprecedented actions taken to defend America. The author is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. Bob, tell us how to get your book. The book is available on Amazon.com right now, and it's also available through the iUniverse bookstore. Uh, soon, soon, hopefully, it'll be in the brick and, brick and mortars, but I need your listeners to go out there and demand they carry it. But uh, through the Internet right now, on those two locations, the book is ready to be purchased. Sounds like an upcoming movie to me. Uh, thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> I enjoyed being on today. Well, appreciate you, Bob. Thanks so much. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, his book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriend at Principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Fighting the Devil, a true story of consuming passion, deadly poison, and murder. And the author is Jeannie Walker, and Jeannie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jeannie. Hello, Steve. Nice talking to you. First of all, I want to emphasize this is a true story about murder that you have researched for 20 years. You know more about this case than anyone else. And you have finally published this book to really bring about justice and also for the sake of the family. Uh, You were married to Jerry Sternadel, and after you two split up, uh, he remarried, and then he was poisoned and eventually died. There was a murder case, and justice hasn't been fully fully uh, served yet, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. It sure hasn't. Still after one of, the, one of the suspects. Let me read what you have written. Uh, there was a time when millionaire rancher Jerry Sternadol gave all the orders. No one dared to tell him times were changing. When he discovered in May of 1990 that his wife Luann and his bookkeeper Debbie Baker had stolen thousands of dollars from him, he demanded the money back by Memorial Day, threatening to have them arrested for embezzlement if they did not. He also told his wife he was going to divorce her. And then they had some lunch together. Tell us about that. Well, he usually had lunch uh, with his wife and bookkeeper. That's just uh, the way he did. Uh, that way he didn't waste time uh, with work, so they always had lunch out at the office. So on this one particular day, uh, 
they went to the bookkeeper and the wife went to town and brought back some taco salad. And he sat down to eat with the wife and the bookkeeper. And after he ate his taco salad, he got deathly ill. Uh, and he was the only one that got sick. So uh, he wound up with severe nausea and stomach cramps and diarrhea and vomiting. And he was sick all afternoon. And he thought that he got food poisoning. But it, he thought it was awful funny that he was the only one that got sick, but all of them ate the same thing. He thought they all ate the same thing. And the doctors were just mystified by all of this. Oh, yeah, they, they were mystified. When he went into the hospital the first time, uh, they thought he had food poisoning. The, the, the doctors thought he had food poisoning. He was in there a few days and got better and went, went back home. And as soon as he got back home, uh, a day later, uh, he was back in the hospital, deathly ill again, with the same symptoms. So this time they started saying, well, this can't be food poisoning again. So then they started thinking, well, there's some kind of virus or something. So he was in the hospital the second time, and he started improving again. And then he got out of the hospital and was out of the hospital one day, and then he started getting deathly ill again and wound back up in the hospital. Uh, so this time they're, they don't know, they don't know what's the matter with him. Uh, cause, uh, arsenic mimics all kind of natural diseases and illnesses. So, uh, who thinks that when you're getting sick, you're being poisoned? So nobody really ever, ever thought that he was being poisoned until they started doing toxicology tests in the hospital. And so they found arsenic, arsenic poison. They said, told him he was being poisoned with arsenic and wanted to know, uh, how did he come to be sick with arsenic? Well, then he knew that his wife and bookkeeper were trying to kill him because he demanded the money back. That's what they, they started feeding him poison instead of giving him the money back. So to get rid of him so they wouldn't have to give the money back and he wouldn't be able to divorce her and she would be out on the street with nothing. So, how so much when he found out about arsenic poison, he tried to get out of the hospital because uh, he started telling everybody that they stole money and uh, now they're trying to kill him. And so the uh, his wife said that he's hallucinating from all the drugs and stuff you're giving him. So nobody they, believed him at all? Nobody believed him, no. But, you know, nobody believed that uh, uh, he, he was telling them, uh, they fed me stuff, they're poisoning me, they're killing me, they're trying to kill me. They stole money from me, they stole $35,000 from me, and now they're trying to kill me. And, and she was saying, he's hallucinating, he don't know what he's doing, it's all those drugs you're giving him, and he don't know what he's saying or what he's doing. So he tried to get out of the hospital. And when he tried to get out of the hospital, well, uh, they called the wife and said, he's trying to get out of the hospital. And she said, well, strap him down because he can't leave the hospital. He's too sick. So then they strapped him down in the hospital, strapped his hands and his feet down to the hospital bed. He stayed strapped down to the hospital bed until he died. And while he was in the hospital, the arsenic levels kept going up. So they how were they, how were they feeding him arsenic all this time? They were feeding him. He got to where he wouldn't eat anything that they fixed. So then they started putting it in his drink. So they would bring him. Uh, they would bring him cokes and seven up to the hospital. And after he finally realized that he's been uh, poisoned, he wouldn't drink or any, eat anything. But by that time, he already had four thousand eight hundred ninety-five micrograms of arsenic in his system. But he was already dying. So it was already too late when he even realized it, but he was still trying to get out of the hospital to save his life. So when did everything change? When did Luann and Debbie become the suspects? Well, they were the suspects to start with because uh, you can't uh, how uh, when a person is poisoned to death, it's usually someone in the family that has access to the food and the drink that they're given that person. So they were the obvious suspects. And then when we found out a teenager had visited the ranch and he accidentally drank some, some cranberry juice that was in the refrigerator at the, refri in the, at the ranch, and he became deathly ill after drinking the cranberry juice. 
Well, then, uh, after we learned about the kid, well, then we had him to go uh, do tests, and he wound up with 278 micrograms of arsenic in his system. So then we knew how they were doing, giving him the arsenic, Jerry Sterndale the arsenic, with the, the drink, and it was in the cranberry juice. So then, then uh, we found the, the cranberry juice bottle and had it sent off to the lab. Well, it had arsenic in it. The cranberry juice bottle had arsenic in it. So then we knew that the wife and, and definitely the wife, and uh bookkeeper stayed there all the time. She practically lived out at the ranch because the wife and the bookkeeper were really good friends. They was even closer than sisters, even. So we knew who the suspects were, was the, the bookkeeper and the wife. So, and that went on for quite some time until two years later, they found a, a, a storage warehouse owner called and said, uh, we just uh, confiscated the uh, storage locker out here because the people didn't pay the rent, and we found some letters and stuff with Jerry Sternadale's name on it. So the cops went out there immediately, and when they were searching through the, the, the contents of the locker, they found in a plastic bag uh, with uh, letters to Jerry Sternadale dated the day that he died on June the 12th, 1990, in that particular a uh, plastic bag was a bottle of arsenic poison. So they found the arsenic poison, and the the storage locker was rented by the bookkeeper. So that's when she was arrested. That's when she was arrested, and that's when she was tried. She was arrested and and tried for the murder of Jerry Sternadale. And found guilty, but a quirk in the Texas law. Tell us about that. Well, she was found, the bookkeeper was found guilty of first-degree murder. Now, first-degree murder usually gets you the death pen- the penalty or 99 years in prison. But And we thought, okay, well, we've got her on first-degree murder. Now they're going to turn around and give her life in prison. Well, the next day, but when you're fighting the devil, you don't never know what he's going to throw at you. So the next, when they came up for sentencing for, de- for the bookkeeper, the jury turned around and gave her probation for murder, for first-degree murder. And everybody was, it was almost a riot out at the courthouse when she wound up with probation. Nobody could believe it. Everybody was, when we got through being mad, we were devastated. The, the, the uh, district attorney said this was a travesty of justice, and he wondered why he was even in the cr- criminal justice system when something like this happened. Then I found out uh, from how the, the jury was able to give her probation for first-degree murder was that there was a loophole in the Texas law that allowed uh, for probation to be given for murder, but that was written in the law for women that were battered by husbands or had to defend themselves. That's that was that that was put in there for people like that, not for people like the bookkeeper. But they used it. So then we had to start fighting to trying to get the loophole in Texas law changed, so nobody else could get could do a, a vicious murder like this and get away with probation. So somehow the judge let that slip by. Well, he didn't have any choice because it is in the law that uh, if they hadn't committed any other crimes and this was their first crime and the jury decides to give probation and it is allowed by law, he really couldn't do anything about it. So then you pursued her probation to make sure she was abiding by all the rules and then uh, you finally had an opportunity. Well, I... I I checked on her for eight years, and she had 10 years probation. So I had followed her for, for eight years, checking on her probation. And they kept saying she's doing everything she's supposed to do. That's all the information they allowed to give you. And so I said, well, okay, but I kept checking on her. And then I found out she wasn't doing everything she was supposed to be doing. And I saw, uh, and not only that, she had, was committing other crimes. 
she was committing other felonies in in the county that she moved to. So I got a hold of the district attorney and told him, you, uh, she's violating her probation, and you need to do something about it. So he said, well, I'll check and see, and, and if she is violating the probation, well, then I'll have her, I'll uh, uh, file a revocation of her probation and put her in prison. And when he did find out that she was violating her probation, that's exactly what he did. And she wound up in prison, and she's still in prison. But the wife, Luann. The wife, Luann, uh, nothing has ever happened to her. She she inherited a million-dollar estate. She inherited a $350,000 life insurance policy, and she's still scot-free. So your view of this, Debbie Baker is going to get out of jail eventually, and then her good friend uh, Luann has all this money and uh, assets. Do you think that's just part of the plan? Well, uh, she's Debbie Baker is supposed to be out of prison in 2013. That's when uh, she's supposed to get out of prison. Uh, she came up for parole twice uh, already, but because there was such a... a, a the public protest was so high that uh, usually when you're in prison, which I'm learning all kinds of stuff since we became victims, but usually in prison you come up for pro every six months, something like that. But because of so much protest, uh, public protest for letting her out, she wasn't allowed to come up for pro, but every four years. So she's come up for pro twice, and... Each time there's been an outcry, public outcry, a protest. So uh, she won't, she can't even come up for parole uh, again until 2013, and that's when she's due to be released. We have about a minute left, Jeannie. Of, will justice ever be completely served, do you think? Well, I don't know. I, I know that it's our hope and our prayer that, that justice will finally be served. I know when you're fighting the devil... He's going to do everything to prevent justice, but I know that the Lord will always win out. No matter what, if you have the faith and believe in him, he will make things win out. So I believe it will. So you feel that justice will be served as long as you keep fighting the devil every minute of every day, as you put it? That's that's what you have to do. Uh, not only me, but you, you, everybody has to fight the devil every minute of every day. And we can't let our guard down either, and we can't give up. So the story goes on. It hasn't finished yet. Even though you've published this book, the story is not finished yet. No, this is just the first segment. So it's going to get, it's going to, as interesting as this part is, I think the next part's going to be even more interesting. And this book is filled with photos. It's absolutely filled with photos. It's got 49 photographs in, in a book, and I've been told that not any book that they know of has that many photos. So it documents all the players in this complete murder story. Yes, it does. It documents every one of them. Well, Jeannie, tell us how to get your book. Okay, well, I have a website uh, that people can go to. Uh, it doesn't have the www in it, but it's uh, JeannieWalkerBooks.com. And uh, I just did a video trailer, and that's on YouTube. People can look at uh, that on YouTube. It's uh, Look Up Fighting the Devil by Jeannie Walker. And then they can get it online, and it will be on bookstores probably in November or maybe before, but it's online. They can get it online, too. So it's all over the place. Well, thank you, so, Jeannie. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's my pleasure. I sure appreciate it, and I hope everybody goes out and gets the book. That was Jeannie Walker. She is the author of her book, Fighting the Devil, a true story of consuming passion, deadly poison, and murder. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.